If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On this episode of Newt's World, The Last Kingdom is one of the most successful historical fiction series of our time. The novels tell the epic story of the birth of England and introduces one of the greatest fictional characters ever, the iconic Uhtred of Babenberg, the Saxon-born, Norse-raised warrior and rebel. In his new book, Bernard Cornwell revisits Uhtred's realm, illuminating elements of the Anglo-Saxon world he couldn't fully explain in his novels. And I have to say, this is one of the most creative and innovative approaches I have ever seen to this kind of historic fiction. Uhtred's Feast offers rich background on the books of the Last Kingdom series, presenting a fascinating, detailed view of Anglo-Saxon life in all its splendor, danger, and beauty. With his remarkable narrative flair, Cornwell explores every aspect of this historical period, from the clothes to weapons to food, offering beautifully crafted recipes of early Anglo-Saxon fare created by renowned British chef Suzanne Pollock. In addition, he has written three new stories exclusive to this book that reveal the man behind the shield, Uhtred as a young boy, as Alfred's advisor, and as prince. So those of you who've been following my podcast know that I'm just a tremendous fan of Bernard Conwell's work, both his Napoleonic series, which is amazing in its own right, and Uhtred's life, and his new book, Uhtred's Feast, Inside the World of the Last Kingdom, is such a creative and innovative book, and also, by the way, a cookbook. So it serves a double purpose. Bernard, welcome back, and thank you for joining me again on Newt's World. And since I'm one of your biggest fans, it is a thrill to have you here. Well, it's a great pleasure to be back with you. Thank you. 
I'm curious, how did you come up with the notion of Uhtred's Feast? It's a totally different approach, and it's, I think, brilliant. Actually, I think it was Suzanne's idea. And Suzanne, I hate to correct you, Mr. Speaker, she's a, she's a good American. Although she was born in Beirut and mainly raised in Africa, her father was a CIA operative. Suzanne had read the books, and she chided me one day, just saying, whenever you describe Uhtred's food, you always have him eating the same thing. It's salted meat, smoked fish, or cheese and bread. The poor man must have eaten something else. And I said, well, you're a cook. You tell me what he would eat. And she took that as a challenge and went off and came up with a whole lot of recipes of Saxon food that could be, as it were, recreated today. And rather foolishly, I said to my publisher, we could publish a cookbook on Saxon food. And they said, yes, if you write three short stories to go with it. And I hate writing short stories. I find it incredibly difficult. But I thought, okay, let's have a go. So I think I have to credit Suzanne with the birth of the book. That's great. And I apologize. We were told she was a British chef. Oh, no, she's an American who cooks in America. She lives mostly in Charleston and sometimes goes to Richmond, Virginia. And she's a superb cook. That's great. So have you actually tried the various recipes? Very bravely, yes. I rather haven't taken her vegetable recipes, as I'm not a vegetable fan. But the meat recipes are superb. And my favorite in the book, I think, is no, not meat, is peas pudding, which is basically the food that kept European peasants alive for 2,000 years. We call it hummus. And it did so because it was easy to raise and produce large quantities. Why was it so central? Well. Food was always a difficulty. You have to feed yourself through the winter. You need ingredients that are accessible. And beans are easy to grow and easy to process. I think it's simply the availability of the ingredients. And we forget that prior to the discovery of the New World, we didn't have potatoes in the Old World. And so potatoes gradually became the food of choice for poor people because they're easy to raise. I think it's one of Utra's great regrets that he was born and lived before the discovery of the potato. I want to ask you about how you approach this. You've written a number of smaller sets of books, but you've written two really long series where you really see the character and you see their development. And do you realize when you're starting that it's going to be, I think one of them is now, what, 19 or 20 volumes about the Napoleonic era? I think there are 23 now. 23. This was, I guess, number what, 14 in the Utrecht series? I think it is, yes. I think I knew when I began Utrecht that it was going to be a series because I knew it was a long story. I certainly knew that about Sharp, that if Sharp was going to fight his way right through the revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars, it had to be a long series. Even so, I never, ever thought it would be as long as it's turned out to be. And it may yet turn out to be longer. I haven't given up on him. Utrecht is the same. I haven't totally given up on Utrecht. You have coming out, what, in about six months or so, you'll have another Sharps novel coming out. Yes, yeah, called Sharps Command. That comes out, I think, in January. You managed to go back and find new niches in their lives that give you an excuse for the next round. Yeah, I leave gaps. Look, as a fan, I have to say, I find myself literally getting involved in their evolution. Well, that's very good. You know, watching them grow and evolve. And the fact that the same person could take somebody as a very young person, as you do even more with Uhtred than you do with Sharp, and sort of grow with them 
but I am really astounded both at the way you have shaped these characters over time so that they have a natural evolution, but also parallel to that and much harder, or at least as hard, you have a knack for writing stories that your use of English is remarkable. And you just get people in there. You're a natural storyteller. Now, is that also true just orally, or is that only when you're writing? (laughs) I think it's mostly true when I'm writing. I don't know. I really don't know. I think, yeah, I'm going to say it's mostly true when I'm writing. When I was an undergraduate at Emory, I had a medieval history professor named George Cutnow, who said one day, he actually had no idea what was going on in terms of newspapers, because he was busy thinking about the 14th century. And when he woke up in the morning, he was in the middle of the 14th century. And I have a little bit of a sense here that these are living stories to you. I know exactly how he feels. I mean, if I'm writing a book about the 14th century, which I actually am at the moment, then when I wake up, I'm thinking about it. When I take the dog for a walk, I'm thinking about it. I mean, it's you live in that period. But as for the storytelling, I always think that the great joy of what I do is that every day I sit down and I write and I haven't a clue what's going to happen. I don't know how the book is going to end. I don't know how the chapter I'm writing is going to end. And the joy of reading a good novel is to find out what happens. And for me, the joy of writing one is to find out what happens. And I think that's the clue. Do you literally not know? I mean, when you start one of these stories, do you really not know the end? I really don't. I mean, if it's one of the Sharps, because most of those are built around the great battles that the Duke of Wellington fought in Spain and Portugal. I mean, if it was, take one example, Sharp's sword, I know it's going to end at the Battle of Salamanca. But how Sharp gets there and what's going to be at stake for him at that battle, I don't know. And very often, certainly this was true in the Uhtred books, I'd get to chapter 12 and think, I haven't a clue how this book is going to end. And Just keep writing is the answer. And it's very frustrating because you suddenly find out how it's going to end. And you think, I've now got to go back and change everything in the book to make sure this ending works. But it does work in the end. I've had some novelists tell me that their characters inform them. They suddenly develop their own logic and their own patterns. You're almost transcribing them rather than inventing them. Yeah, they make decisions, which often I dislike, but I let them do it because that's what they want to do. And it's extraordinary. I mean, in the Sharp books, Sharp, who is an inveterate enemy of the French in all the books, ends up marrying a French woman and living in France. I never intended him to do that. He just did it on his own. And as far as I know, he's still there and very happy. And I think that's actually rather fun when characters dictate to you what they want to do. You do have a legitimate tie to Uhtred, if I remember correctly, through a very distant relative of yours. He's a distant ancestor of mine, yes. Indeed he is. And he claimed ancestry from the god Odin. So I think I can claim ancestry from Odin too, which is rather a nice thought. So you are currently Odin's writer. (laughs) (laughs) That's one way to think of it. (laughs) I hadn't thought of that, but yes, why not? Was that a part of what got you into Uhtred? Was Babenberg itself? Yes, it was. I had long wanted to write a series of novels that described the creation of England because I realized that although I received a very good education in Britain, I hadn't a clue how England had actually come to be. But I didn't know quite how to tell that story. And then I discovered 
that I was descended from this great warrior, Uhtred of Bebenberg. And I thought, that's it. I'll tell his story because he was alive at that time. Now, we know very little about him. I mean, everything I put in the books is fiction. I mean, I've given the poor man a much more exciting life than he probably led. But that was the key. The key to it was discovering that I was descended from this Saxon warrior. Babenberg itself is open now to the public, isn't it? It is. It's called Bamburgh Castle, and it's a magnificent place. The castle we see today was mostly rebuilt in the 19th century, but it's still an extraordinary place built on this volcanic plug of rock on the Northumbrian coast. And it wasn't until it was battered by artillery that it actually fell. And it was an enormous fortress that resisted the Vikings and lasted right through history. And it's still there and open to visitors and well worth a visit. It's an extraordinary place. And it also resisted the Scots. It did indeed. It was the favorite place where you imprisoned Scots because they couldn't get out and they couldn't be rescued. King David II of Scotland ended up for a time there before he was sent to the Tower of London. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. One of the things that struck me is historically, I've often always identified Alfred the Great with the development of England or England land, as you called it in that period. But in fact, 
there's like three or four generations of fighting to solidify the ability of the English to govern the southern two-thirds of the kingdom. Yes, I mean, Alfred, you can credit Alfred with the idea of England or Englerland. He was an extraordinary man. And while he was king, the English, the Saxons, suffered the biggest reverse when the Danes, the Vikings, really succeeded in just about capturing the whole island, except for a little patch of the West Country. And Alfred rebounded from that to defeat them. But it was his son, Edward, and his grandson, Athelstan, who actually made, and his daughter, indeed, Ethelflaed, who created what we now call England. But all they were doing was building his dream. And it was Alfred's dream of a united Saxon country that became England. So he certainly deserves the epithet, the great. And without him, I'm not sure it would have happened. I was very struck in the TV series. I thought that the person who played Alfred was really convincing. He was wonderful, David Dawson. He was absolutely splendid. And because I had to follow real history, I felt that some of the life went from the books when Alfred died. Because without Alfred to bounce off, Uhtred was rather rootless, but he kept going. There are enough challenges from the concept of England to the reality of England. Your description of the ultimate battle, which I didn't realize we're not totally sure where the battle took place when the three armies came. We are now? We are now. There's a wonderful scholar in Charleston, South Carolina called Michael Livingston, who has become really the world's greatest expert on where battles took place, and he's extraordinarily clever. But the real credit for discovering the battle site goes to a group of amateur archaeologists in Britain who discovered the site. It's on the Wirral near Liverpool. And Michael almost immediately visited and confirmed their discovery. So we do know now where Brunenberg was fought. But for hundreds of years, the battle site was lost. And indeed, the battle itself was almost forgotten. And yet after Hastings, it's probably the most important battle fought on British soil. Well, that's what I was struck by in, in the novel where you deal with that. I mean, here's this extraordinary moment when all these armies come together in one last desperate effort to stop the English. And they easily could have won. They could and should. In many ways, they should have won. It was Athelstan, Alfred's grandson, who led the so-called English. He would have said he led the West Saxons. And it was a brutal, horrible battle. It was one of these battles of the shield wall, which are almost unthinkable today. I mean, when you are within three or four feet of your enemy, you can smell him. And you're hacking at each other with lead-weighted axes and swords and spears. They were gruesome battles. And Brunenberg was an enormous battle, which ended up in a total victory for the Saxons. And at that point, it sort of settles down. But, I mean, the truth is... English history is pretty violent for virtually its entire period. So is American, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> Listen, I plead guilty. We've had our share of conflict. But the making of England was really a war. It was a brutal war between the Viking invaders and the Saxons trying to defend their own territory and retake their territory. And very little of it was peaceful. It's marked by a series of battles. And it was indeed very gruesome and very bloody. I want to see if I've captured where you're coming from. My reading is that Uhtred is attracted to the Norse life, but ultimately is loyal to the English. He always ends up being loyal to the concept of England. 
He does, but he was brought up by Danes, and he actually loves the Danes. He marries a Dane, and they appeal to him. He likes their lifestyle. He likes their attitude to life and death. And in many ways, he fights like a Dane. There was a kind of feeling among the Saxons that it took three Saxons to defeat one Dane. And Uhtred basically says, well, in that case, we better fight like the Danes. And he does. He's a Viking at heart, but he's a Viking who's on our side. And there were Danes who fought in Athelstan's army. By this time, they'd settled in England, they'd married Saxon women, and they felt as English as the English. And quite a lot of them were in Athelstan's army, fighting against their Danish and Irish enemies. One of the things that's striking, and I'm just now watching a movie called Red Bad, which I think is either Danish or Norwegian, but it's about the degree to which Christianity is dissolving paganism. So the Christianity becomes a major weapon in terms of unifying England and in terms of ultimately undermining Viking civilization. I think that's absolutely true, just as it undermines Anglo-Saxon culture. And Uhtred is stubbornly a pagan. I don't think that's out of any great belief in pagan gods. It's basically to annoy Alfred. And having taken that position, he sticks to it. But the war was more than just a political struggle. It really was a religious struggle. And Alfred saw it very much in those terms. He believed that if a Dane converted to Christianity, then that he became a friend, not an enemy. So in a very real sense, the missionary priests are a significant part of Alfred's grand strategy. They are indeed. And converting Danish rulers or Viking leaders to Christianity was vitally important because once they were converted, he believed they would turn all their followers into Christians who in turn would unite with the Saxon Christians. The process of all that, you have moments where it's a little hard to know who's up and who's down. I mean, you have King Canute, for example, who has an enormous influence and is one of the strongest leaders, in fact, probably the strongest leader in the North in his lifetime. Oh, indeed. He comes a little after Uhtred. And it's Canute, indeed, who is responsible for taking Bebenberg away from the family. But Canute was an enormously successful and great leader, and he's often called Canute the Great, too, who takes England and makes it part of the Viking Empire. When you look at all this, I'm fascinated that you have managed in Uhtred's Feast to weave together historical stories where you're just a great storyteller with literally a cookbook. <laughs> it's a brilliant concept. I don't know very many people who could have pulled this off. It just struck me that the degree to which the Anglo-Saxon diet of that period could be translated into modern meals. Well, that's what Suzanne did. I mean, Suzanne was determined to make them accessible, that if you can go to almost any supermarket, you can buy the ingredients, and then she tells you how to prepare them. And it's actually rather a healthy diet. They didn't have processed sugar, for one thing. There's no processed You had to have honey instead. So there's no sugar in it. And, okay, it can be quite meat-heavy, but I like that, so I'm not going to complain. Did they actually have that much meat? They certainly had a lot, but not enough to feed everybody sort of thing. I'm sure most peasants kept a pig. And November was known as the month of slaughter, where you slaughtered your livestock, just keeping a few alive to breed the following year. And you would then salt that meat down or smoke the meat, and that would feed you through the winter. But 
if you had one or two pigs that didn't provide that much meat for the whole winter. Meanwhile, the aristocracy, like Uhtred himself, would probably eat meat year-round because they were privileged. Now, you also make a point that bread and rolls and that sort of product are very central to their whole diet. Bread is very, very central. And according to Suzanne, who's tried cooking some of it, it, it does taste a bit different. It tastes rather rustic. The one thing it doesn't have in it is chips of stone, which they would have had, because as the mill wheels ground away, some stone would chip off and it would end up in the flour. And you'd bite down on bread and there goes another molar. <laughs> I was going to say, I think most modern people would find that a bit tricky. But baking, as I remember correctly, is one of the points you make. Is I think literally having a baker goes back to at least 2000 B.C., so bread has been integral. They have the oven. I mean, a bread oven is not easy to make. And right through until at least Tudor times, it was often there was just one baker in town, and you took your pies to him to have them baked. You could make a pie, but you didn't have your own oven. So you'd walk it down the street and give it to the baker, and he'd charge you a penny or two and bake your pie. The meat itself was usually cooked over an open fire, wasn't it? Yes, it was open fire, or it was braised. I mean, they had good cooking pans. But yes, it's open. a lot of it is open fire cooking. Would they have had metal cooking pans? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, and we've discovered a lot of them. They had metal cooking pans and metal spits and enormous cauldrons. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry. Back to Iguodala. Up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. I've started reading the galleys for Sharp's Command. Your ability to go from Anglo-Saxon food around 800 and then jumping to 1820 or 1810, they're totally different worlds, totally different rhythms. They are, but I've lived with Sharp now for 40 years. So, I mean, picking Sharp up again was not difficult. I mean, he lurks at the back of my head all the time. And... I've always wanted to write one more story of Sharp in Spain, and this was it. And he sprang to life really quite easily. Well, thanks to you, I ended up one day touring the walls of Torres Vedra with a local expert and just getting a feel for that. I think Wellington's campaign is extraordinary at every level, starting in India. He was an absolutely extraordinary man. I mean, for my money, certainly the greatest general in British history and probably in European history. The French would disagree, but then Waterloo happened, and they can't argue with that. I teach a class for major generals, and I always tell them the story about the head of the horse guards, the British Army headquarters, writing Wellington and saying, we're sending you a new division commander. It's Lord so-and-so. You will have heard rumors that he is crazy, but when they released him from the asylum, they assured me that he was fine. Although I must say, he looked a little wild in the eye when I said goodbye to him at the port. And I just tell him, this is one of his three division commanders. So don't tell me you have a problem. Who then went on to fail spectacularly. Yes, he was as mad as a hatter. Yes. And so Wellington had to run the army and run that division because he had no commander who could actually run it. It's one of those marvelous moments that sort of hard to explain. Yeah, you know, I may have told you one time when we did a podcast, but I really got turned on to you by General Jim Mattis. We were having dinner one night, and he said he had never understood Waterloo until he read your version. And he said suddenly he could understand it. And that led me into Sharps and then everything since then. You say you had a four-star General Secretary of Defense who thought you wrote the best single explanation of Waterloo. I thought that was pretty good. Waterloo is just a great story. I mean, it is an extraordinary story because although the battle begins around 11 o'clock in the morning, by about half past seven that night, you really couldn't tell who was going to win, which is why when I wrote my only nonfiction book, which is the story of Waterloo, it felt in many ways like writing a novel simply because the story was on the knife edge all the way through until the last chapter. If the Prussians had not shown up, could Wellington have stood or would he have been forced back? Probably forced back, because obviously Napoleon could have thrown more troops at him. I mean, Napoleon made so many mistakes that day that it's very difficult. I mean, I'm told by people who war game that it's almost impossible for the British to win on the war gaming tables. But, you know, the, the raw fact is that they did. One of the things I'm curious about, if we can stay with Sharps for a second, somehow this relatively small professional army had an enormous sense of morale and pride. 
they were willing to take on huge odds just because they were who they were. Yes, they were. And it was partly, I think, because they were so superbly led. I mean, a sergeant wrote after the wars, all we ever ask is for Wellington to lead us. We know we'd be well led, we know we'd be well fed, and we know we'd win. And Wellington himself reckoned that army was the finest army probably in all Britain's history. And he only wished he had it with him at Waterloo, which he didn't, of course. But the same thing applied. They had total faith in him. And, I mean, he once said that the presence of Napoleon on a battlefield was worth at least 10,000 men. Some people say he said 40,000 men. But I would say the presence of Wellington on a battlefield was probably worth the same. They had total faith in him. He was a general who never lost a battle. And you cover this in the very early Sharps books. To understand Wellington in the peninsula, you have to look at Wellesley as he was then in India. That the Indian experience shapes him in a way that no other British general has been shaped. Absolutely. He learned his trade, really, in India. And in later life, he was asked what was he most proud of. And he answered Assay, which was at one of the battles in India. And at Assay, he took an enormous risk and threw his small army really into a position where it could have been completely defeated and won. And he was incredibly proud of his strategy on that day. And he's often called a great defensive general, which he was. And this is really an insult to him, which the French rather liked. But in fact, he was also a great attacking general, as he proved it to say, and forever after Salamanca. I mean, Salamanca was an extraordinary attacking battle in which he attacked and, as somebody said, destroyed 40,000 Frenchmen in 40 minutes. I think that's the one where he's sitting on the horse. Yes. Holding the chicken leg. And he suddenly realized that they're split, and he throws the chicken leg and says, I have him. Yes, he's Marmon et Perdue. Mon cher Oliver, Marmont, my dear Oliver, who is his Spanish liaison officer, Marmont is lost. And he chucks the chicken leg over his shoulder and gallops off to the third division. But, you know, your description of a say, I'll just say this for all of our listeners, I've reread it three times because you capture the Scottish battalions or the Scots battalions, the way they fought and the discipline and the odds they fought against and the degree to which at some point one side or the other is going to have its morale break. And the side that has its morale break is doomed. Is doomed, yes. And it was interesting, the Scottish battalion, one of them got cut up very badly. And an Indian farmer, when I visited her, say, told me about finding the bones when he plowed the field. And he said they were very big men, and I thought, okay, but I doubted that they were any larger than the rest of the army. But it turned out he was right. And I came across figures that showed that Scottish soldiers on the whole were three or four inches taller than the English and Welsh soldiers. And the Scots were enormously brave. And it's more than morale. It's also discipline. It's an iron discipline. As one battalion commander said to his men at the Battle of Waterloo, as long as you stand, you'll live. But if just one of you turns and runs away, we're all dead. So just stand. And they did. And the morning of Waterloo, Napoleon was warned. He'd never fought against British infantry. And he was warned by his generals that they were incredibly tough to beat. And he rather dismissed it and said, just because you've all been defeated by Wellington, you think he's a great general. But I tell you, he's a bad general and his soldiers are bad soldiers. There are two things about that whole French relationship with Wellington I've never fully understood. The first is 
that the British figure out because the French are so reliant on their artillery that if you just stay slightly behind the military crest, virtually all the French cannonade will be irrelevant. It'll be noisy, but it's not going to hurt anybody. It would hurt a few, but not many. But the French never seemed to understand this. No, they didn't. I mean, in all those battles, Wellington does exactly the same thing. They're just slightly behind the military crest. The bombardment's over. And he tells them all to lie down so that a cannonball or shell that skims the crest won't hit them in the head. And there was a rather untactful moment before the Battle of Waterloo when Wellington visits Blucher, the Prussian general, and sees his men lined up on the slopes at Ligny and says, that's not very sensible. Why don't you take them back over the crest where they can't be hit by the French artillery? And I think it was Neisenau, who was an aide-de-camp to Blucher, rather cavalierly said, our men like to see the enemy. Well, his men did see the enemy and died. They were cut down by French artillery. Two days later at Waterloo, the same thing did not happen to Wellington because he'd retired them over the crest. You know, it's the oldest trick in the book, hide your men from the enemy. And the second part of that is that consistently for the entire peninsula campaign up through Waterloo, the British ability to shoot from the line against the column so that the British, given anything, not even parity, if they're only outnumbered, say, four to one, they're actually going to bring far more muskets to bear than the French are. Yes, and the British were the only army to actually practice with live ammunition. It sounds extraordinary, but I guess ammunition was precious and short, and the others didn't. And the French relied heavily on the column, which is a very tight formation, but nobody, rather, in the middle of the column can actually fire a musket. All they can do is just keep marching forward while the guys in the front two ranks and down the side files may be able to fire. And they're faced by this very thin line, only two deep, of redcoats, where every man can fire. And the French did realize this. I mean, they were not completely stupid. And they developed a tactic to get over it, which was to advance in column because it was a quick way to advance. But just before you got to within firing range, you deployed into line. But that didn't work either. They tried that at Waterloo, and it didn't work at all. So the line versus column is a trophy of the Peninsula War and indeed of Waterloo. It's a fascinating process. And, of course, the other thing is you have to have pretty good logistics to have live fire practice. You do. And Wellington was a master of logistics, which is really that's one of the things he learned in India, how to keep his army supplied. And throughout his career, logistics is a key to almost everything. I mean, his worst moments were the retreat from Burgos, where logistics fell apart because of a mistake of a quartermaster. And that was probably his most miserable time in all his career. Then taught him a lesson not to let it happen. Yes, he blamed himself. If something went wrong, it was his fault. I just want to say, your new book, Uttred's Feast, is about as creative and unique an approach as I've seen in a series. Anybody who has not started either the series involving Uttred or the series involving Sharp, you have a wonderful experience ahead of you. This is one of the great novelists of our time. He writes just remarkably useful books where you just learn a lot of stuff while also being entertained. So, Bernard, I really want to thank you. As I think you know, I get great joy out of doing a podcast with you because I'm so impressed and fascinated with your abilities. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us both about the art of being a writer 
and about Uhtred's feast. And in April, Sharp's command will be coming out, and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk again. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to talk to you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you to my guest, Bernard Cornwell. You can get a link to buy his new book, Uhtred's Feast, on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is New Tool. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.